Welcome back to the White Belt Podcast, your one-stop shop for the weirdly specific intersection of movement and mindset skills that help us live stronger, more fulfilled lives. My name is Fernandez, and I'm excited to bring you a conversation today with John Clayton. John is a peak performance coach trained in psychology, both with a background working with high-level athletes and also playing rugby to a high level himself. John works with men to teach them the practical skills of handling their mind differently and turning what they know into what they do. This conversation is packed with practical tools you can use to develop the discipline to act in alignment with your values, both in uncovering what those values truly are and how to consistently act in alignment with those values when the going gets tough. It's a great conversation. Without any further ado, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with John Clayton. Mr. John Clayton, thanks for being here, man. Yeah, I appreciate you having me, Fernandez. Yeah, dude. I'd love just to kick things off, man, by you telling us a little bit about your story, your background as an athlete and the kind of journey that led to you doing the stuff that you do now. Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. The yeah. The thing with my background is probably, it's probably a story that's been told a hundred times. Probably the only difference is where I went with it after that. So yeah. um, so rugby league was my, my sport of choice. And mm-hmm. growing up, it was all I wanted to do. I got an opportunity with the Sydney Roosters out of school, which is my favorite team. Went to the Roosters for about three years, and I just had a string of injuries in a row that sort of, for about a six-month period, things started. Yeah, to get what injuries? Um, so initially, it was a I had a, went in for a clean out in the knee, and that felt a that, you know those happen all the time. There's like cartilage, all that sort of stuff. Came out of it and just got tore my quad. Started to have like calf issues. It was lots of issues with the same leg. Got hip bursitis that lasted for. A, about 12 months after that. And then first game back, I got into a tackle and my arm got trapped underneath and I tore the labrum off. So then they were like, in six months' time, you'll have to have a full reconstruction on your shoulder. So just a few things in a row that that sort of derailed me. I was pretty strong in the gym at the time was where I was at with it. And I was proud of that type of thing. Mm. But um, when I, after that, I, I came back and I was, you know, middle, lower of the pack. And I started to find that my head, even though I still had opportunities get presented, I started to not take those opportunities and I would start mm. to go missing. And it happened for a couple of years, a bit of mental health stuff. But after a while, I just sort of, I, I got back into a groove, things were fine, but I'd missed my chance at playing a high level of rugby league. When I retired, it became one of those things where a lot of people probably go, I'd like to handle injuries through personal training and strength yeah. and physical world. For me, I was like, I want to handle the mind differently and how mm. I worked with my mind was how I got stuck and didn't take things that were given to me and, and appreciate those. And I use this term with people now with clients as well, like successful, but suffering the best times, the possible best times I could have had were the times where I was most unhappy and wow. just, just struggling and floundering. I love that term successful, but suffering. I feel like that's, mm. yeah, that's really powerful when you see you were stuck in the mental mm. aspect of things. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that if you're open to talking about it. Like how did that manifest for you? What was it like for you on the inside mm. of your mind? I needed, I think everyone sits with like, where do you motivate? What pushes you and and what gives you that drive forwards? And I found some people were just like self-motivated, but mm. I found my, my mind was always externalizing and I would look at someone else in the gym and I'd say, I'm stronger than them. So that was good. But mm. then there'd be someone else that I was weaker than. And so that was bad. So it was sort of like this constant battle of like trying to build this self-identity. And I'd only, I only realized that, really cognitively now looking back mm. on it at the time it just felt like that's what you need you just push yourself off people 
and then you you improve and you chase the next person. There's always someone in front you're trying to, to get better than. Yeah. So that was sort of where I sat with it. And I, I got I used to get so anxious before a game that I would like vomit. Like I'd ah. just get worked up in my head. It was so important. And I just didn't have fun. I didn't enjoy playing sport anymore. I had to retire, had to give change of direction and reset. For me, the thing I'd probably say is that if I was to draw on something that I found helpful with other people has been comparisons are a never winning battle. Like if you compare yourself mm. to someone worse than yourself, it's, it helps with your identity, but for what purpose? Like you're already better than them. You're just doing it to be a bit more certain. And if you compare yourself to people better, you, you if they're too far better, you create a bigger gap and mm. you, it, it stalls your progress. So that's probably why I've gotten into like values work. And I think values are one of these things with like, if you do want to do improvement, values are always available. They're like the next step. They're the compass in front of where you want to go. You don't need to compare and use the ego and try and navigate that process. Yeah, it's interesting. There's there's this, from where I sit, it appears to be this kind of tension between comparison is a motivating factor that takes people very, very far, especially in the world of competitive sports, but I think in all areas in business as well, it seems mm. to be this really powerful motivating factor and, and almost a driving force that can breed a lot of confidence. But I think, you know, like you're saying, at the, maybe as a, as a thief of joy or like, you know, mm. as a something that robbed you of the enjoyment of the things in the process, it's difficult, mm. I can imagine, to make that jump from being motivated by the comparison to if you just take that away, there's a bit mm. of a vacuum and what does that get filled with? Does it go mm. back to the comparison or, you know, have you had any thoughts about how to help people make that shift from using fuel as like using a fuel light comparison to using a maybe more healthy fuel that burns for a bit longer? Yep, absolutely. I've got probably about four points I thought of there from, so oh, it's very sick. good, very good we question. We don't even know what you do yet and we're already getting into this. <laughs> Jeez, this is great. I'll have to do a good <laughs> intro. <laughs> um, I like the Jordan Peterson uh, approach of like the they get them the rat and they have um, they put the smell of cheese in front of them and the rat runs on a treadmill and they test motivation through like the velocity and so what they found is oh the smell of cheese yep the rat picks up a bit of pace and runs a bit faster they put a cat behind and the rat runs faster they put cheese in front and the cat smell behind and the rat sprints but yeah. but they put the smell like right next to them and their nervous system freezes up. <laughs> so, mm. so you've got to have fear behind you. So the way I look at motivation is uh, I use the cat is accountability, a community, expectation in a, in a kind, understanding way. Like I use self-compassion pretty regularly. Like it's good to have accountability, but it's not good to use it as like a crutch to beat yourself up. So that sits behind. Then we use values as the cheese. So values are pretty complicated once you get into the science of it, but the simpler part of it is that they're the leading principles of your long-term goals. So if your goals way out here in the future and you have no reason why it's important, we look at the little consistent themes of your goal and bring that back into the moment so that your reasons and context are back in. So if we're looking at the example of like a basketballer, and mm -hmm. you know they want to win the, the championship then they might say well winning the championship shows my professionalism my um, consistency my um connection with my teammates whatever values might sit there we bring that back in today like then you might say i'm about to go to a practice how can i turn up professionally be consistent and, uh, i might come and do 
extras before the session. I might high five all my teammates as I walk in and amp everyone up. Like, what are the actions that lead to that long-term goal that you can do right now? And they're within your control. That's very, very interesting. There's a lot to unpack here in this kind of values and the, the cat and the cheese, but I'd love to start. <laughs> uh, that's, it's a cool analogy. I like it. Yeah. But like, and also it's, it's interesting. I can see how there's levels to this as well. Cause you know, there's mm. when the cat might take over a little bit too much, like how much does that, it might contribute to your performance, but at what cost as well. So I'd love mm-hmm. for you to speak into a little bit more about setting up maybe a cat in a healthy kind of way. And, mm-hmm. you know, how do we use that? maybe fear or maybe understanding of how bad things were in the past as fuel without that letting without letting that fear kind of be overcoming or you know really underneath everything what's driving everything awesome no a good question probably the first though my to talk of my history i did my psych degree once i came out of that and yes you know started practicing some of this stuff yes, my yes. first my first person off the ranks that i really started to go this is amazing and this is something i want to learn was off um, carl rogers and mm-hmm. carl rogers is well known for the um person-centered approach and a few other things like that but the underlying theory he sits with is called the organismic valuing theory it's this theory that an organism it comes from biology actually but he uses huh. it in psychology that an organism any plant any animal whatever will thrive if it's put into the right environment so if you put uh, a plant into an environment with sun, blah, 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 water, nutrients, awesome, little bit of stress. It needs that little bit of stress and it will mm. thrive. You stress, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that, that those sort of hormetic responses. So that's, that's the idea and that's why his entire counselling model is built off that. When I look at then the motivation that sits behind people, I, I think accountability is around belief, really. It's about belief and expectation and people who hold higher standards for you. The challenge then is that some of us have had those family members, people around us that mean well, but then enforce those standards and beliefs through like dictating. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like you're only good if you do this or, you know, why are you being so lazy? And, And we start to internalize that stuff. So I think holding a standards is fine, but how we respond to the setbacks is really where we need to get better with coaching and as, as um, people sometimes as well. Um, yeah, holding space is probably the end, end result of that. So that's what Carl Rogers' model is called, the person-centered approach. And the way I describe it is holding space. It's about being there, so you're present with someone, mm. you, you acknowledge their pain, and then you don't give them advice if you know if they have the answer themselves it's not about advice giving it's about holding that space so that they can come to the conclusions themselves and then work into that next direction so they can self-write yeah they have that self-writing muscle that that sort of increases as they go so that was one of the huge learnings for me i love carl rogers and anyone who hasn't seen it there's one live recording of him doing a therapy session it's like so bizarre but amazing i wish i'd been able to meet him wow interesting Uh, I think we're going to jump around a little here. I'd love to come back. I'd love to put a pin in the in the setbacks concept. We completely agree that is an incredibly, incredibly important thing in in so many different aspects of your life. But what drew you, or you know, where did that really that drive take you after that? You mentioned you studied psychology. Then how did it lead into what you do now in terms of how you apply that in your career and the kind of ins and outs of what you do with clients? Mm-hmm. Um, so the next steps really were meditation. For me, mm. not that that was like at the time it was still coming through in the research and it still probably still is in a lot of ways, but it was my next step. It gave me 
a point where I could look at my own experience and see some of my thoughts and emotions and things like that with enough mm. space that I was able to go, there's a different way of doing things. I'm not coming from them. I don't need to be rule-based. Like I was very mm. black and white thinking and things like that. That's when I uh, met my, my current partner, long-term partner, um, and she introduced me to this model acceptance and commitment therapy. And that's really oh, wow. the, the base of everything I do now. That's how you knew she was a keeper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she's given me lots of stuff over the years of, cause she's a um, mental health social worker. So there's been some coming from my psych background and she's in that it's a good comparison. We, we have great conversations, but pretty much I am a person who's very stubborn. Um, <laughs> I like, I don't like, I don't believe other people easily. So when she told me about it, she probably told me three or four times. And I and I, I work with the clients the same way now. I don't believe things that I'm told and I don't expect other people to. I want yeah. them to experience them. Nice. Like if you can experience this, then then it's a different sort of understanding. If you experience it once in session and easily, then you can bring it out after the coaching session and use it in real life. So experiential is like one of the core principles of what I do. But anyway, back to ACT. Acceptance and commitment therapy is a third wave model of psychology. And pretty much that means that we only focus on the present moment for all interventions and they need to be context independent. So the idea is that if I am talking to you right now, I can use any of the skills. If I get into a fight with a family member later on, I can use the same skills. If I'm having internal fights and I don't want to train the same skills. Mm. So they called there's six meta skills that sit above this model. And they're context independent. So you can use them at any time to take action. The idea is that it's an alternative to internally driven. Like if you're just a, like an animal almost, you're just driven by thoughts, driven by emotions, mm. then you, you're just at your, your base level function. So the idea is then what's your higher, per, what's your higher leading point? Where, how do you move towards those things? Yeah, fascinating. And we, we mentioned kind of on the, when we first connected, you were telling me a little bit about acceptance commitment therapy or, or ACT. And I'd love for you to break it down a little bit more. Like what is it at its core and what does it look like in practice mm -hmm. as well? If you were to give me some examples. So there's three founders. The main one that I talk about is Stephen Hayes. And he came from a place where he had a uh, panic disorder mm. and his own mind got in the way of him being able to do the things that were important to him. And they've found mm. the early research was around phobias and things like that. But what they found was that if you were mind isn't an issue is it's just a, a tool that you're using you would have prints have things you want to do and then you take action on them right mm. that does that make sense it sounds that sounds like <laughs> it happens all the time just know <laughs> got a thought act on it no no resistance no fear yeah <laughs> <laughs> wish that was the way it worked all the time exactly and so like my tag on insta and that is um valued action man because that's what i sell like i want people to coach is that you know what you need to do you know the underlying principles that lead to it, you do them. That, mm. That's where we want to get to. So that's two of the tools of the six, of the six meta skills. And so one is committed action. The other one is values. We, we identify values. We take committed action, always in present. The other four are helpers. And the way I look at it is that um, at any point where your mind starts to weigh, decide, figure things out, provide you with prompts, it's trying to be helpful, but it does it at this point where you're either moving towards your actions and your values of that person you want to be, or you're getting hooked 
by the thought, feeling, emotion, whatever else, and you're moving away from that person. So what we do is we put helpers right at that choice point to pull you towards valued action. So the helpers are diffusion for handling thoughts. We make space for them. Uh, acceptance, which is allowing difficult emotions to come and go. Self as context or the observing self is noticing, using language that's from a, a point of seeing the mind rather than being the mind and mm. contact with the present moment, which is very traditional mindfulness. It's the mindfulness is like, you know, focal object, current point, feeling, sensation, you know, bandwidth in the current moment. We just call it contact with the present moment to remove any of the external stuff and language from it. That's fascinating. So you've got the two, just to kind of summarize that mm. back, you've got your two main things, which are kind of knowing what your values are and then committing to the action in alignment with those values. And mm-hmm. then if any resistance is kind of arising based on some fears, some emotions, something like that, you've got these little strategies that you can use real time in both the therapeutic setting and then also in a setting that it could be you know, when there's a fight with your spouse or when you're about to do something that's very, you know, challenging physically or something like that, that you've got going through, you know, diffusion, acceptance, mm-hmm. kind of dissociation a little bit, and then also getting in contact with the present moment. And they're kind of your strategies real time to be able to then take the value, take the action that you know you need to take. Is that kind of a fair summary of what you're talking about? Absolutely. And I realized that there's probably things that I miss because of my understanding like that's okay. from doing that. But Part of the model is too is is a is a term called functional contextualism, which is that nothing is wrong. Like your brain is never actually mm. doing something that's good or bad, and a lot of the times that's probably where we we start to label good and bad experience. Mm-hmm. Um, part of my experience has been working in mental health, one of the fields, and I've worked in severe mental health, and often you get hear people go like that's a negative experience and that's yeah. whatever. But what we say is that it, like a broken chair, if it has a three-legged chair it's broken according to the existing medical model but it could be good for as a lion tamer or it could could be good for propping open a door or you know what i mean like lion it's fun <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah i've used that one a few times but um the idea is that it's only broken in one context yeah all experience in the mind is actually functional in at least one context normally so like if you've got um, self-criticism it's because you internalized possibly this is like what i see from a lot of people a parent or caregiver at a young age when you did something that was outside of your safe area and they you know did something you use self-criticism to try and prepare you so you didn't do that thing again or you internalized the voice that they were using that 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 was coming from and that was helpful to help you avoid feeling that feeling at that time absolutely but, so what we choose now, though, is we go, none, none of your brain is what it's doing is not right. It's doing what it's meant to do. Keep you safe. Keep you part of the group. Avoid pain. Move towards stuff. But sometimes it's not helpful what it does in the moment. It throws up, it's a tool that's throwing up tools that aren't helpful right now. So it's like, here's some self-criticism. Do what you can with that. Fill your boots. Um, <laughs> you know, and it throws up all these different options of like pain, fear, like they sit deep within the body and you just don't know why they're coming up. But it's like you got you learned this 10 years ago that when someone's doing this, it means that they're going to fight you or get angry or whatever else. Mm-hmm. So what we do with it is we say, um, is it workable? Is this experience workable to, to take action against my values? If it's, if it's working, then I do it. 
Like I don't, it doesn't matter that I have this negative feeling. I'm still doing my valued action. But if it comes up and then it hooks me, then I use a helper and then I create space to do that work that I need to do. So the, the, whether something's useful is that we look at it utility wise rather than good, bad, negative, positive. I like that a lot. And I think there's a lot of value in seeing things as they are and, and prior to the labeling of them as well, because it's so much you hear, you hear in the way that people talk all the time is like, oh yeah, but that was a really negative experience that I went through or like, you know, I really just want to move mm -hmm. away from those bad emotions, you know, like, mm -hmm. and I think that's, it's very problematic when those quote unquote bad emotions are constantly arising in us and you know what I mean? And we're trying to run away from them. And something mm -hmm. I really liked, I saw that you shared some content around as well was the problem with reframing and affirmations <laughs> and how maybe tools like that have been used in the past are quite popular but maybe you know your understanding from a science perspective where you were kind of saying that you weren't really as much of a fan of reframing and the thing that comes to mind when you're speaking about this is how is it different how is reframing different to what you're talking about in terms of thinking of these things in the utility kinds of way so i can see how that could fall into the trap of easily just like reframe your thought think of it as useful think of it as not useful but how is this different to that and why is reframing maybe scientifically not so uh, not such a great strategy. Mm -hmm. Probably a couple of points to hit on there. One is um, the efficiency. So mm. when I look at this model, and that's why I'm, when I saw like ATG and some of these like new movement practices, I always align with them because it's like it's it's another model for efficiency. Nice. But I think this is the most efficient way. If you look at a lot of people that do this pop psychology um, and the culture that come with that, it's just a lot of like you need to constantly keep doing, you know, mm. repeat your thoughts in a different way. It just doesn't seem efficient to me. Further than that, I don't actually think it works. So reframing as an example, I, and by the way, there's certain there's certain underlying principles that work consistently. And if it works for someone that even if they're listening to this, don't change it if it's working for you. So nice. there's principles that still sit under them that, that can work. But for me and what I recommend to most people is it might work, but there's other things we could probably try first that are more efficient and effective to get the outcome that you want and probably work in more context than reframing where you've got half an hour to sit through and figure out how you're going to restructure this thought. But one of the, there's a couple of areas of the psychology of this that they've, they've looked at and they've really started to link it to the way the brain works as well, which is that um, after a child, you know, neurons don't really develop as often except in the hipp hippocampus. Instead, increases in like networks happen through synaptogenesis so increases in um, connections between neurons and myelination which is either thickening towards certain areas of the brain or reduction as in like reducing the need to go to certain areas of the mm. brain so nothing's ever deleted and that's what i probably find wrong with some of the the cbt like the brain's a computer uh replace this software change this um, operating system improve your ram whatever <laughs> yeah, what yeah, I mean? yeah yeah <laughs> but so i don't i don't think that i think there's some of the underlying principles like if you're still exploring the mind you're still doing the observing self from the act model so if you're still looking at yourself and having a conversation about like oh i'm noticing this thought just noticing that thought is actually a really helpful tool because you're still creating distance so some of the science that's led to the work in act for thoughts is in and i use metaphors because these are um exchangeable or relatable for people to understand is the idea of don't think of a pink elephant. So the frame in the brain for don't do 
replace this, that's not that, also includes the frame in the brain that says the thing that you don't want. So it's a bit like that um, operation, you know, when you're touching it like, you're like, you're just like a little electrode and you're touching that spot and you're lighting up the whole area. So when you try and reframe, you're pretty much squeezing that area and saying, I don't want this experience. I don't want to think of myself like this and lighting it up and increasing the pathway to that area of the brain for the next time that it happens. Mm. So that's for thoughts. Emotions, we look at it like a ball and you put that ball into water. And if you've ever done this, you push the ball underwater and then you're like, yep, 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 good, it's gone. You let go and the ball like comes up hard. Emotions, the, br- the body doesn't trust that you know what to do when you don't have emotions available. So it thinks if you're suppressing emotions, I need to make these stronger, more common. Mm, it, and, interesting. And, and it's teaching yourself that you don't, you can't handle them. So it's like a little thought that's attached to that, like, I'm scared of my own emotion, which is what a lot of like panic disorders are. It's not the, the initial anxiety, it's the anxiety about the anxiety and the mm. fear of the experience that's coming after that. So what we do is we say, you can't get rid of emotion, you can't get really feeling sensations, thoughts are going to happen anyway. Don't worry about changing them. It's inefficient to try and restructure, reframe, change their experience. Instead, we like almost like surfing. We allow them to come in their time and go. And then once they're gone, then we go, okay, do I have enough space? And even while they're happening, we could have enough space. But if they, we don't, we just allow them to come and go. And then when they're gone, then we choose our valued action and we do that. That's so interesting. It's the fear of the, the emotion, I think, is such, especially in, in the modern age, is something that certainly in my experiences with mental health, it, you know, in the positions that I was in, it wasn't really anything external that was happening to me. It was more about my internal dialogue and my own relationship, my internal thoughts and emotions. And mm. that fear of the emotion is so powerful. And, it, you know, it doesn't feel experientially, in my experience, like it's anything different than a real emotion itself or than mm. the reason that the emotion was first created. But just that fear of the emotion, it can be such a vicious cycle to get into. Mm-hmm. But so, and I'd love to kind of press on that a little bit more. How, how then you kind of recommend that people start to deal with that? Because you mentioned kind of like, just don't worry about it. But in some ways, it feels pretty worrying for a lot of people at a lot of times. So I'd love mm-hmm. you to speak a little bit more about how to kind of deal with emotions when they start to feel like even the presence or the idea of them arising becomes so scary and so debilitating. Mm-hmm. This is one of those sliding scales of... Um, so in, in psychology, you look at like an exposure pyramid. Mm-hmm. So exposure is one of the ultimate um, tools in psychology beyond like placebo. And mm-hmm. exposure is pretty much like, you know, someone has a fear of spiders, you show them a picture of a spider first, um, you put the spider on the other side of the room, you progress it towards that. The issue becomes that some people have um, your tolerance windows. So mm-hmm. the window of tolerance with regulation can become out of whack, especially with trauma. And I mean trauma in the, the Gabor Mate style of like big trauma, little trauma, you know. Yeah. But um, even with that, it starts to become, you move out of your window of tolerance and you're not ready to accept information or experience. So I'd say at times having someone who's trained either with a somatic therapy or um, talk like storytelling, anything like that where they're able to tap into some of this stuff without you going outside your window of tolerance is quite useful to explore. Mm. If you're still within your ability to acknowledge that, which a lot of people I work with are, so that's why I, I... work in that space is that what we would do is we would say like if we're doing it right now what's the emotion that's coming up when you're trying to do the thing and we would acknowledge 
first thing I named it, name it to Tame, which is like the main tool I use. Beautiful. So it's like it's like a fifty percent reduction in the impact of an emotion. This is from Dan Siegel, by the way, if anyone's interested. Right. Dan Siegel's a great neuroscientist. And name it to tame it is like the simplest tool. Like if I'm struggling, and my experience has been I really struggle with um experiences of shame. They're like the mm. the, the deeper ones that I find that I used to have this it's funny I can talk about it now because it used to be shameful to even talk about mm. it. But um, I used to have shame and I would like shake my head to try and get rid of it. I would have these like little ticks that I would do to like get rid of that emotion. Mm. And shame was one that I just would just push down all the time. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I got a, a good friend too that says, uh, disinf- sunlight is the best disinfectant and it's true nice. for emotions as well. Mm. <laughs> but. The idea would be then with, with shame and whatever else, we just name it first. That's step one. We we, we, we notice that we have shame, it, that it's an emotion, that it's a message from the brain. Sometimes it's helpful to even to say, thanks mind, thanks brain, thanks whatever. Like, appreciate you sending that out to me. I know you're trying to send me a message, whatever it is. Then we'd move into, and the main one I, I use is um, objectifying the emotion. There's 50 million tools under acceptance. But I use this one because I find it's worked really well for me because mm. I'm a very physical thinker. So what you would do is you would notice where the emotion sits in the body and shame, you know, is around the chest, belly area. Notice the edges on it. Is it sharp, mm. jagged, square, whatever else? What's the substance it's made out of? So we try and notice that. What um, is it got a color? Then we might put a hand on it and say, has it got a texture? Is it... Is it rough, jagged, whatever else? You just keep going through these steps until you it turns into a physical thing. Mm-hmm. And then while you're visualizing that thing, not trying to change it at all, you breathe. Step three is then to breathe and expand around it. And you'll notice that. And then you might start to like contact the present moment by like, we might say, what's five things you can see in your environment? What's four things that you can hear? What's mm. three things you can smell? Uh, and it's not distracting. We're trying distraction is one of those alternatives we don't want to move towards because it can become a something you lean on too often. Yeah. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to notice your emotion, but notice all the other things that are true at the same time. Because we, you know, I, I think I said this to you the other day. It's like looking through a keyhole. Yeah. When we have an experience of an emotion, it's like we're looking through the keyhole and this emotion's huge and it's bigger mm. than us and we can't handle it. But when we realize it's a chemical and a physical process happening in the body and that we have all these other things that are going on, we can notice all of that as well. Then we take action. So that's what we try and work through. We get people to experience that. That's really, that's really, really interesting. I'm, draw, I'm drawing so many parallels from what you're talking about from this framework and from these fundamental psychological principles to a lot of the other spiritual work that I've done as well. And it's so, it's so interesting just mm. to think about from a physiological and you know psycho, psychological study perspective. You know, what is the color of shame? Does not mm. sound like an especially scientific question at first glance, <laughs> but it's yeah. really, it, no, it's, but it's incredible that these kinds of these methodologies are able to also be studied by science and then combined with rigorous literature and rigorous mm. scientific inquiry as well to then maybe fill in some of the gaps where some of the purely esoterical, the purely experiential and experience-based spiritual practices can then come and start to, you know, be tested and be peer-reviewed and all these different kinds of things. And mm. I've never heard of that tolerance window before. I think that's a that's a really powerful concept. Mm. You know, just the idea that different people with different amounts of trauma have different tolerances to be exposed to the particular thing and staying within that tolerance window is, and you know, obviously this is, you know, a practice that you probably want to do with someone who's qualified because knowing where that yeah. tol- tolerance window is, if you step mm-hmm. outside that, it might be a little bit too late by the time you found out. But at yeah, the same yeah. time, just the idea that there is some amount of tolerance that you can kind of 
this is exactly the same thing with the body as well. When it comes to pain as well, you want to start with inside the pain-free range of motion or something that's below a two out of 10 and then slowly expand the pain-free range of motion to the point of what something that used to cause a six out of 10 is now causing a one over two. And then you're just playing it slightly, you know, a bigger and bigger arena and expanding <laughs> out over time. So it's really interesting that the exposure side of things is quite similar to the way the body works. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that either. So I appreciate mm. that comparison because that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, but look, for, for the tolerance in the mind, it happens in the body. It is fight, flight, freeze, and please. Like it used to be just flight, fight was the responses, but they've realized now that some people go tolerance hyper arousal and some people go hypo. So mm. hyper arousal was my turn to for a lot of my responses. It was like anger. Mm. I, I fight. I get ready to, except when I can't. And then it's like I drop, I drop down, I freeze, yeah. and it's like a like a fawn almost, or mm. like an animal. It's like the blood goes in, you withdraw, your body shrinks when you can no longer deal with it, and that's what often happens to like children or people in sexual assault survivors and things like yeah. that. It's like that I can't control it, so I shut down. But the tolerance window is really about noticing the physio physiology. It's like if the person starts to they come in or they're starting to like get agitated or they're sweating more or whatever else you notice they're physically moving out of a place where they're hearing or accessing memories they're moving mm. more into like something stored and invisible um there's a great book uh bessel van der Kolk, called the body keeps the score yeah uh, and it's about that deep that's what's really happening with this regulation tolerance window it's like they're no longer within their space they're, they've moved outside of something else is happening they're, there's ghosts from their past that's showing up in the present yeah, I think it's also a really important thing to be mindful of as well. And, you know, I'd really love for you to start to speak to it as well. If someone's starting to hear the stuff that you're sort of talking about, they're like, hey, I've never heard of this act thing. Mm -hmm. I, you know, maybe have been experiencing some of the stuff or maybe some frustrations with other methods not working for themselves in the way they want to feel in their own experience mm -hmm. of themselves. And they want to start to try some of this stuff out. What are, the, what are some first touch points and first ways that people can start to experiment with this with this? for themselves or, you know, kind of walk you through a little bit of a scenario of how someone could begin practicing the skill of this. I'm, I've always been very like, I like to either work one-on-one -on -one or teach myself with things. Mm, Some yes. things like we work with Keegan Smith. Keegan, I love to learn off a mentor because a mentor can help you leverage sometimes. And I yes. look at psychology the same. I've had, I'm not the easiest person to be a client or a coached. So I've never, I haven't really clicked with many psychologists in the past, but doesn't mean that everyone else doesn't have different experiences with that. But my starting point really was the book, The Happiness Trap in ACT mm. uh, by Dr. Russ Harris. And Russ has like plenty of good YouTube videos on this stuff too. But the book was really good because it sort of compared the, the social society's idea of things and like how we need to feel where, versus the reality of like what our mind does and evolution and and that sort of stuff. So like that was a really good entry point for me. Nice. Um, there's so many books on it, but I, d I would say that they're not a great entry points. Some of them, they're very con like text heavy. Most therapists in Australia, which is where we're talking from, are trained in CBT for yes. their uh, Medicare. And some of them are also act like it's probably the second most popular model after CBT. So in your area, if someone's looking for it, you can look up a website and they'll say trained in acceptance commitment therapy as well. It's a very common approach. So it's just um, the difference would probably be if someone's trained in CBT first, no, I'm not any disrespect to anyone that's doing this. Their underlying theory is sometimes different to someone that's completely into the act model. So 
they wouldn't do the functional contextualism side. They'd be more about empiricism, which is about everything has a function and a cause sort of stuff, mm. scientific model, you can get to the bottom of it. This is broken, that's not broken. We have a complete understanding of the world. Whereas ACT pretty much says everything shifts based on context. So mm. it makes it very hard to research sometimes. And that's why some CBT practitioners steal bits of ACT, but don't completely envelop the model. <laughs> Interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, all you CBT practitioners in the comments, I'm sure you're <laughs> raging right now. Just feel free to go ham. That's great. <laughs> no, that's 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 good. So starting with the happiness trap, who, who is the author of the happiness trap? Dr. Russ Harris. Dr. So Russ, Russ Harris. Anyone who knows ACT, even if it's actually quite a popular self-help book, but anyone who knows mm. ACT, he's like the guru. Um, yeah, right. Outside of Stephen Hayes and um, a few of the other guys. Yeah. And then if someone was, say, in a situation where they felt a lot of anxiety arising in a particular moment or even the thought of the next anxiety episode arising, would you mm -hmm. recommend that they already start to, you know, what kind of strategies could they start to implement from this ACT framework, for example, in that mm -hmm. moment? Or is that, is that a realm you would recommend they go and see someone about before they try and experiment with themselves? It's always worth seeing someone, but probably because it's if we're meeting with someone in session it's normally about what sticks out the most like you can mm. you can start from any point on the hexaflex the six tools to get someone started but if someone comes in and he says anxiety it, it often is that that is the priority but sometimes mm. people might be like i don't want to face my anxiety and then we need to do values work and that's what a therapist or a coach will do with you they'll they'll find the end point that's most efficient for you to get that process started. The um, I often quote this, but the mode, you know, in um, statistics, the mode number of therapy wow. sessions, uh, it's probably the same for coaching, is one. Most people only ever go to one session ever. Wow. So you need to get quick wins and you need people to have an experience where they, they notice that things are changing. And that's why I recommend finding, getting someone that's the right fit and having a crack. And I would say, if you are that person like myself that gave up after a couple of sessions, Stick with it. <laughs> like it's a longer path to have to learn it by yourself if you mm. don't have someone helping you through and navigating it for you. But yeah, look, I would recommend going to see people. The On the flip side, if you're looking at the tools for it, the number one tool for except like for an emotion or an urge is definitely the um, expansion tool or under acceptance. The other big one I use if there's, there's an emotional storm is called dropping anchor. And this is probably quite a popular one within the model as well. But the idea is that captain's on a ship, there's a storm happening. We're imagining in this instance, it's an emotional storm. The choice for the captain is to try and navigate these, the storm and the waves and everything else is happening, the rocks as he tries to bring it in. The alternative is to drop anchor, sit out and wait out the storm. Mm. So very similar approach to the other one. The only difference would be that we're, um, we're noticing it's more about dropping into the moment. So we might like push the feet into the floor, sit up straight. We might rub the fingertips together. Um, whatever it is, breathing, control the breathing. It's really about just dropping into whatever is like a comfort space. And there's a couple other parts to it I normally coach people through, but that's sort of the gist is you drop anchor when you know that there's nothing you can do right now. You need to just sit it out. Um, and that's good for the big emotions. Excellent. So the expansion was the was the kind of process you described before about like locating a particular feeling, kind of mm. giving some 
some uh, color or some shape and some edges and trying to define it until it feels like it's a thing that you can feel within your body and then kind of breathing into that and kind of expanding it a little bit, softening it a little bit. Whereas yep. dropping anchor, the difference would be you're not necessarily going looking for that particular emotion in your body. You're more just trying to slow your whole physiology down and trying to calm down with breathing and just drop into the present moment and kind of weather the storm. Would that be the difference between the two? Yeah, absolutely. That's when I try and navigate it. I normally do expansion as like the – and name entertainment is like your soft approach, like right. name it for everything. Expansion I try and use for anything that's a bit more sticky, like a, an emotion that's grabbing you a bit more. And then dropping anchor is really like – oh. I'm, you know, I'm caught in an emotional storm now. I need to just wait this out. Like mm. the other term we use is surfing the urge, which is more for like I use it for habit forming. But it's the idea is that on average three minutes, one of these experiences will last. It's up to twenty, but on average three minutes. And so if you know that you've got three minutes, we're we're trying to sit with it while that experience happens and just ride it and just go. It is what it is. It can be useful. Uh, like I like. It. Some people, you like get out a notepad and pen and just write down, I'm noticing um, anxiety and then it's a six, now it's a seven, now it's a five, like just to ride that wave out and to feel that experience happening. We're, and we're being nonchalant, we're being a scientist, we're experimenting, we're seeing what it feels like. We're not trying to control anything. That's really great, man. I think there's a lot in there for people to kind of go back and listen over again and just like experiment with the tools that help them deal with the in the moment kind of the emotions are coming, the stuff's coming. You've got to kind of deal with that in that moment. But I think the the thing I want to start to, to mm. go back to is the skill component of this and the long-term strategy component of this kind of thing. Cause it's such a fa- powerful framework that you're talking about as well. It's certainly something that since I had delved into kind of self-help, self-help psychology kind of thing, I never really mm. came across this kind of stuff. And I wish I had earlier on because I think it would have had a lot better of a bit of a time. But I want to come back to the values and the action side of things, because I think that's really, to me, what jumps out to me is helping people build these long-term new baselines of existence, building consistency and building momentum with behaving in alignment with their own values. Mm -hmm. I think the first piece of that is knowing what those values are. And Mm -hmm. in my own personal experience doing different work, a lot of what I've seen and experienced is often the first time I tried to write down my values it felt like just fucking picking things out of the air. <laughs> yeah. And also what I found was that I was encouraged to write things down, but then it was very difficult to know whether or not those were my real values or whether or not those were just things I thought I would like to value. Absolutely. But really when it comes down to what my actions weren't in alignment with those at all. And if you looked at my actions, you'd see that it maybe aligned a lot more with comfort or with mm-hmm. avoiding discomfort or something like that. So mm-hmm. I'd love to speak to you. I'd love you to speak to a little bit about the formation of values and the identification of values and ones mm-hmm. that not only feel true but are also useful to kind of build a foundation on. Absolutely. It's um interesting side note. I was um, talking to Saar Markovic, uh, who's one of the Uncom guys in Sydney. Okay, cool. And Saar's put up a post today where he, he put up um, that, you know, this toxic spirituality. And I was like, right. amen, brother. Because uh, for me, as soon as my, my thing was I – Never went back to the gym. Like after I quit football, I went full the other direction, disowned my ego. Right. But but I picked, I threw one veil away and picked up another one really mm-hmm. at the time. <laughs> yeah. So so for me, I got my values out and I did I did a card and I did a like a um, like a card for my wallet. I wrote all my values and there were things like um, mindfulness. There were things like um, yeah. compassion, like all the things that I knew that I needed. But they weren't things that were actually important to me, and yes. I was, and and I remember thinking at I think the time, it sound nice, 
Yeah, if I showed someone, this would look really cool. Yes, exactly <laughs> the same as me. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and these days, like I, I, I've worked with athletes, semi-professional athletes a bit. And like for one example, there was one guy that had, was working through his values and he was like, put him up on his social media. And I was like, probably the next thing to do would be name your values, but imagine that you're never going to tell anyone. Mm. Like they're, you're, they're like these inner secrets. And maybe even keep them in a space where you're like not allowed to talk about them or anything else. And probably even, and some people we even do, if if no one ever knew that this was your value, how would we see you do the value? Yeah. So that's one way we, we, we come up with it. The other thing is we try and, I use a video camera often. So I might say to someone, like to uncover values, it's five years in the future. We've got a documentary crew following you around. That What are they seeing you do when you're acting on your values? What are the behaviors that we can observe? Mm. The difference is that people, when you don't say, what can we see? Often describe like, I'd be confident. I wouldn't be feeling anxious anymore. Um, things like that. I'd have a million dollars, whatever else. Like these product goals or these avoidant mm -hmm. um, behaviors. So when we say, what are we seeing you do? It often brings back more of a, I'd be playing with my kids in the backyard and I'd be fully present. And then I would go and do my work and it would be a deep working session where I got like heaps of writing done and I had all these creative ideas and I was working with clients and having great outcomes or whatever else comes up in, in that values thing. And then we drop down. It's always drop down one level mm. um, with those. These are like positive frame ones, by the way, for values. So we'd say, what, what could, what's for you sits under that? And I use a list because I do find that people find it hard to fill the canvas when it's a blank canvas, but I'll have like a list of values. We might do very important, important, whatever. We bring it, we get down to 10, we get down to five. I, it's fine having a few, but in the moment, you're never gonna remember more than about three to five. So I actually say three these days because for a long time I'd be like, I remember my top two, but I don't remember the rest of them. So now I'm saying three, stick with three for most people in the moment, save them. And then it's about put them in your visual field. So put them on your phone, put them on your desktop, um, stick them on your wall if there's something you need to do. I like um, putting them up in my, where I'm doing my rowing because I started to notice I'd take action on my rower and I'd be like, I'm doing my rowing for today. Oh, I'm doing so much better. I'm looking good, da, da, da. And I'll be mm. like, no, no, your values, are, you're doing it because you value your longevity, your health, consistency. Nice. And that ch that changes, like I'm, I'm much more consistent now when I do things because I'm doing for value reasons, then I'm doing it because I want to look better or I want this. None of them are wrong, yeah. but it's just more functional is, is my approach. Did I miss something there? We were talking about values. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just the, <laughs> the identification of values. But I think yeah, I think you also provided some useful tools for that as well. Like yeah, maybe mm. to when you're identifying these values as well, to maybe run that through a couple of filters as well. Like, okay, well, is this is is this a behavior that I can yeah, see yeah. myself enacting? What does that look like in practice? And also, if I was never to tell anybody anything about this, would that still be a value that I cared about? Yeah. And I think also something that really helped me with this as well is this one of the guys that took me through my first kind of value stuff, which is like, hey man, they can change. And for yeah, me, yeah. I was like, oh cool, I don't have to go get <laughs> yeah, this right yeah. the first fucking time, and then just like be, you know, I'm, I'm bound to this, and I'm like, damn it, I said mindfulness. You know, <laughs> like, you know it's like it, it, can, it can evolve and it can change over time, and it doesn't, you know. And I think it's in my in my personal opinion, it's it's great that they do change as well, because so if true. you if you look back at the first iteration, you're like, you know what. I feel like there was some elements of truth, some grains of truth to that, but there was still some mm -hmm. performance in there. 
And really, when I look back, actually, this is more true for me now. And if you go through those cycles, those kind of concentric, smaller, small, smaller, and smaller circles, you arrive at values that feel more and more at home and feel like they are really an extension of yourself and a part of yourself. And you notice when you, if you have, you know, version two of your values and you're behaving, you're going through the world and you're living your life. And then you notice that there's this one particular value that when you try and behave in that particular way, it feels a bit forced. Or that you find you start to find that actually this is going in a different direction. I feel like this word feels more true for me. This concept feels more true for me. That's a little bit more of a battle-tested version as well that you can start to yeah, it feels mm. more like arriving home at a set of values rather than trying to fucking nail it from the outset and then put it on your social media story. <laughs> That's really cool, man. And it's great. it's amazing that you've come to that. Like you've experienced it and learned from it, and you had mentors that sort of guided you with it. But that's definitely my mind. It's like seasons of your life almost. Yes. Like, what's important changes as well. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for, for me, mm. definitely wanting to be quite an analytical person as well, wanting to get them right from the arts. I'm like, I have to pick the right ones. These are my, you know, yeah. it's, just, it's can take some of that pressure off as well. Yeah, no, for sure. The um, I use the metaphor too, like a pizza. Uh, mm. It's like, you like Hawaiian, whatever. I like meat lovers. doesn't mean you're right and I'm wrong. Values are just different people's flavors and spices and toppings and yeah we can unfortunately we can em, em, empirically it has been shown that if you do like wine then you are wrong so that's, <laughs> a, that's, that's the, i think that's what the latest research is showing margarita <laughs> is the wrong one <laughs> that's it that's it uh, I feel, so yeah, that, this is great man i feel like to kind of close this this loop as well i'd love to bring it back to the action side of things as well so we've mm -hmm. kind of been through like the the current moment strategies the little helpers mm -hmm. that you kind of call which i love that idea like it's the helpers i think a lot of focus gets put on the help but not enough gets put on the actual really really core cool stuff which is the values and then the action as well and yep. the action is the kind of bedrock of creating belief that it's in alignment with those values because i feel like mm -hmm. my experience again when i first started writing the value stuff was like i put these words down on paper and i mm -hmm. looked at my life and there was this, when I'm really honest with myself, there's this clear distinction. I was not living in alignment with these values at all. And it felt like a huge chasm to try and cross the gap from where I was. There were so many parts of myself that had so much doubt about whether I was worthy of, you know, writing these down. I was, mm. They felt kind of true, but they, when I really looked at the way I was acting, there wasn't, there was no alignment there. Mm. And the action for me has been the key piece that helped me cross that chasm and start to build on greater and greater foundations of living in alignment with those. So I'd love for you to speak a little bit more about the importance of action in this system mm. and what that looks like from a kind of clinical perspective. Mm, great questions. Probably it's one of the criticisms of the model at times, which is ridiculous considering that one of the core principles is committed action. You hear that but CBT? People often... Yeah. <laughs> ridiculous. They're in the comments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there's a couple of things here. One would be values of... And in action are so intricately linked, intrinsically linked that, um, you, like you look at like someone could be a serial killer that, you know, like a Dexter type. They could use the other tools to unhook from these feelings of like guilt and things sure. to then and be more mindful and do all that sort of stuff. But they're not living by values. Mm. Like that's that's sort of the gist of it. And there's certain values that are correct and wrong, um, that incorrect. Like people could be taking action without values too, and they won't feel that reinforcement they'll get more of these like high dopamine dumps instead of these like trickling dopamine re orienting rewards. So I feel like values orient action towards rep repetition and, and change of behavior. But for action itself, and this was an interesting, absolutely interesting area because therapy and therapy sessions are like 
out of context. It's the same as like someone going to a rehab for addiction. Yeah. It's it's unrealistic. You're around people that you're not normally around. You develop skills in a context you're not used to, and then you're told you're thrown back in and told to use these skills and and take action on them. And that's why I find that the model itself is built around funding. Like, and I'll get mm. to like proper action after, but I'll talk about like the yeah. transfer between action first. Is that funding is like they had to put a proposition in to say, you know, how can we get people to do psychology? It's 10 sessions and they do it one on one and it's uh, speech therapy, either face to face and now they're doing a bit of online. But is that the best outcome for people across the board? I would say no. I like, I find that scaffolding happens in the moment. And if I don't have things that are happening right as I need to do action, then it's not functional or useful for me. So for people to actually take action, I like to use the behavioral sciences, so like your um, Skinner type approaches, the the traditional behaviorism. So I might like, um, like I said, about putting values into the visual field. That's a scaffolding tool that we're using in the moment. So when you know you wow. have a choice, you have that there to bring that back in. It doesn't mean it's gonna always work, it's just making it more likely. Um, friction, I like to utilize. I think of it like a um, like a curling, you know, the Olympic sport curling with the big disc that oh, goes yeah. across the eyes. It's a bit like the guy with the broom walking in front. We try and make it easier for you for your behavior to slide through. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, <laughs> Love <those> analogies. <laughs> By the way, the model part of the model is metaphors because it works nice. in a different part of the brain. It stops nice. the anal analytical part. But I like it. <laughs> but I like that analogy because it's like um, it's it's easy to do certain things in certain contexts and it's harder to do others. So what we try and do mm. is we just make it easier in the moment to take that action. So you might, you know, get a checklist that you can work yourself through. You might have um, someone who's a supporter. And this is what I'm trying to develop too is like there's some models that where you can access a, a coaching call in the moment to guide you through a skill. If you're going to take action, you get stuck. There's some models where you can actually get that type of stuff. And wow. I'd like to extend that. And I think there's plenty of people who are doing flexible models now that can do that. The idea is that unless it's in the moment where you need it, some of these tools are less than worthless. They're like, they're a great thought. They're almost like, you know, the values that you want to tell people about. Yeah. But the other behavioral stuff really is, is choice and executive control in the moment. So it's, if you know you have a choice, you can, you can get out of the automation. Like the deep parts of the brain are like, I'm noticing patterns and I'm repeating. Whereas the front of the brain is going, I notice a choice and I'm analyzing it and making choices for action in the moment. So that's really where we try and get to. It's really about bringing the executive um, medial prefrontal cortex online, getting that analytic brain to have a look at it and then make choices like inhibit this, regulate that, do this um, in the moment. And we, we use the scaffolding to try and build those supports. That's really what we do. We use the goal and the measure as the action. So if you do the action, then it's been successful. If it's not, then you just got hooked and you didn't create enough space. And then we, we keep doing tools until we get to that point that the action is completed. I really like that the action is the outcome because that really helps with a lot of the outcome dependent stuff. If you know, if I bring it back to you know movement, weight loss, and and all that kind of stuff, you know, achieving a movement, you mm. know, getting losing a certain number of kilos, that kind of stuff. Often, that's a poor master in terms of trying to get the outcome at the expense of everything else. Because often, you know, it's a it's a moving target and all these different kind of things. So, using the action 
as the mm-hmm. outcome. Basically, just it's a process orientation. It's like, hey, I can give myself that little internal dopamine reward or real physical reward to say I actually committed to this process and I'm doing the action. I'm following through. I'm building integrity with myself. And that's, um, yeah, that gets you at that virtuous cycle of success as well, which I think is really great. And do you notice that in like people working out, like if you saw someone drop out, not drop out, do you find some of that intrinsic motivation happens more or with people that stick with it? I think it's a combination of multiple different factors in when it comes mm-hmm. to exercise and food and well, you know, nutrition is less of my expertise, but I notice this kind of pattern where there's both the learned discipline. Mm-hmm aspect of things which is basically just the experience and the reps over time the more that you do things the more that you kind of grease that groove that you do the pathway to whether that's with a specific movement skill or just the act of going to training the more it becomes a habit part of your life the more mm. that value gets ingrained the more likely you are to behave in alignment with those values mm. and at the same time you see many examples of people you know i think it's especially true the bodybuilding community gets a big rap for this and i think for, for good reason as well but you mm. see people many people behaving in alignment with those and going through those habits but really to the detriment of, detriment of themselves as well. And that's where you come back to the underlying reason and the underlying motivation for doing things in the place that it's coming from as well. Mm. So what I try and help, and also when you don't have a good place that it's coming from as well in the beginning, it's much harder to stick with something if it's purely fear-based motivation. You don't have the cheese, you've only got the cat or something <laughs> like that. Or you've only got it because you want to do something cool for Instagram and when you really come down to it, it's not really in line with your values. Yeah, yeah. So what I always try and do is help people both stick with the discipline side of things, but also before I even start, I want to find out what lights somebody up. What's something similar to the kind of video camera analogy that you use. Mm. When you see yourself in a year, like what are you doing with your body? What Mm. is all of that training? What are you training for? You know what I mean? It's training for training, for training, for training, but like what does that help you do in your life and how does that make your life better? Are you blowing your self-perception out of the water and able to accomplish all of these amazing skills with your body? Are you having fun moving? Are you playing with your kids in the backyard? Mm. Are you, you know, like feeling strong and powerful and capable to take on the challenges of your life? Like what does that actually look like for you in your body? Mm. And if you have that why underneath, if you know why you're doing things, then it becomes easier and easier to do actually do the action and build the repetition, build the discipline, but you're also building the discipline in service of something you actually really care about as well, not getting halfway down the track and realizing that you've just been doing it because you got called fat in high school or something like that. And it's, <laughs> it's just purely, you know, not this, there's no, no hate no, no. at all. It's, no, no. And often people will do things. Certainly my experience is I did things for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. And then once I had the discipline in place, I went back and looked at the reasons and tried to find a better reason. And so I think that's also gen- genuinely a viable path out. And I think you don't have to get it right from day one. But with the advantage of a coach and maybe with a bit of thinking as well, you can build on a bit of a better, um, a better, stronger foundation as well. Mm, I like that. I like your, uh, you get to the why. I think that's, if we look at values, we look at other things, it's like get to your why and you'll, things get a lot easier. It's when you're lost and you lose contact with that. Not, values are really just simple ways to keep your why. Like yes. if you could remember the whole story when you're doing something, then we'd use that. But values are like three to four bits of information. Yeah, but the other one, I, to the why, I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good term. I write that down. Um, but discipline's an interesting area, and mm. I think there's a good crossover there with the work because you you do like one arm chin ups and muscle ups and things like that, right? You teach people still working on my one arm chin, but yeah, muscle yeah. ups and yeah, that's the path I'm on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and no, those are an evidence of probably ongoing discipline like people need to repeat that skill you can't really steal it like you can like i do have the big 
uh, bench press, but you know, I just that wasn't that hard <laughs> to yeah. do that. So Whereas, lower skill component. Yeah. So, to, but to do like a muscle up, that's that's multi joint. There's strength elements. There's skill. Absolutely. So, discipline wise, I'd be interested in just to explore. Do you find people? Do people galvanize around it? Like, do, does doing that build discipline? Does it? If they stop doing it, do they lose discipline? Like, that's. I just thought that was an interesting area to explore. If they stop doing it, do they lose discipline? I think mm. it, I think that's very person dependent. If I look at my experience with clients, when the people get really excited about it and build on constantly new levels of skill, I think often people fall in love with the process of proving to themselves that they can do things that previously their doubt thought that they couldn't do. Mm. And that 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 building of your of your behavior is basically behavior in alignment with actions, and also it's all of those. It's like transcending doubt and. Mm-hmm building self-efficacy as well. And I think mm-hmm. that's one thing why I really love strength skills and movement skills is because you don't just, for many people, a little extra plate on, on the bar is not nearly as significant as being able to do something markedly different with your body. For some people, a little plate on the extra bar is super, super exciting. And fucking, <laughs> yeah. If that's you, then more power to you. But at the same time, you know, for something, especially when there's a fear component as well and something like a handstand where you could fall over, you know, acrobatic skills where it it, it feels mm. like your body is resisting it and then to take that to something that is actually, that you can do and that is comfortable and is actually a strength is a very mm. powerful process. And I think when that, when that bleeds into other areas of your life and what mm. you believe you're capable of, that's very powerful. And I think that's when I personally find that I don't, in, in many cases, I don't feel like I need nearly as much discipline to endure something I don't want to do mm-hmm. as other people. Other people think that working out is all about enduring something you don't want to do. And they mm-hmm. build their practice on top of that. There's a very David Goggins type approach. It's just <laughs> how much suffering can I tolerate? Um, the, <laughs> pretty much the opposite, which is like, how can I align my life and my training in alignment with my values so much that when I get up, I'm excited to go and do the thing as opposed to like proving to myself constantly that I can, that I can tolerate abuse, which mm. is hectic i have a lot of respect for david goggins but that's i, I, very, I very much differ on in philosophical yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. that's where i think we, people do build something akin to discipline and they build self-efficacy which helps them believe that they're capable of things and endure more things as well mm. but i think that there is also many other people that don't continue and i think that there are reasons for that i think that maybe people don't really find that you know they got the thing and then that kind of afterglow fades and they're like oh they might lean into more comfort. Mm-hmm. They might find something else. You know what I mean? I don't, there are definitely people that don't continue building on their movement practice and they start to either go to do different things or some people stop altogether. And mm-hmm. I think that there, are, that there are many, many factors as to that. And I, I don't pretend to understand all. So. <laughs> yeah. Life situation. There's so mm. many things that could happen. I just thought it was interesting because it's such a, such a hard skill to develop. And it was it like, really is. Hmm. And there was some, I wanted to, I know you speak a lot about discipline as well and the cultivation of discipline. And I know you also work with a lot of high level athletes. And, mm. you know, I can imagine that someone like that is going to have a different baseline level of discipline compared to somebody who's trying to build adherence and consistency in the gym for the first time, for example. And mm-hmm. their battle is slightly different. Their battle is with the lack of discipline. Whereas you were speaking to your experience before, it was maybe a little bit too much. You know, you were very, very disciplined, but maybe that was coming at the cost of some well being and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when someone's kind of first trying to build consistency and they maybe need a little bit more discipline, 
but it's a bit of a battle of like lowering the barrier for what is considered successful, you know, mm-hmm. like building success and stuff like that and be like, hey, there's going to be some mistakes in the beginning and also building that discipline over time. How do you kind of navigate that when someone's building adherence? Is it just mm-hmm. shut up and work harder or is it a little kind of dropping the barrier to entry for what's considered success? I like to drop in the barrier and to entry and, and like friction, we look at fun as well. Like how can you mm. make this more enjoyable or pair it with something and things like that. But I like I like to talk about that type of one. I I probably come from the I I like the UFC, so I like to use them as a bit of a story. But I did this one on um, Justin Gaethje. Do you know him? The I've heard the name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's so he's he's well known for being almost like the Homer Simpson of um, his division, the lightweights or whatever. That's where hilarious. He, but he he's he's got quotes saying I'd. I, I don't mind getting punched in the head, but I do it coming forward. So I'd rather have it glance off my forehead than get sit on my heels and get cracked and then like absorb the full force. Mm. And I look at that as like willingness is different to doing something and gritting your teeth and just getting through it. And it, sometimes you just got to grit your teeth. There's just like nothing you can do about it. But the point is really that we want to approach, we want to use the the Goldilocks zone, you know, the – the perfect place of like stress versus um, uh, enjoyment and just slightly stretch that bit by bit every time we have these experiences. And it's back to the, like the exposure group. So it could be like a, like a rubber band. Mm. If you pull that rubber band right out and if you let go, it snaps back. Whereas if you stretch it slightly, if you've ever done this to like hair bands, they just stay that, and you're like, oh, now I've got to wrap it around six times. <laughs> Bro, I'm living proof right here. Man. Just a lot of hair here. No, I like it. Yeah, so we, we just try and expand slowly, bit by bit. We, we're here to make permanent change. And as you said, the Goggin stuff, There's you've probably, you're probably a spiritual, you've done some of the spiritual work. There's stuff in Buddhism, I forget the term, but where you do something that you hate every day so that you can experience like and, and understand that and work through that. Like That's fine. Some of those things are really as we talk about like the word galvanize, I really like mm. that as like you, nice. these, these experiences build you. But if you're not doing it for the right reasons, then you will they will actually harden you around that. They're not giving you what you think you're getting out of them. That's sort of where I, I've gotten to it. So I, I think bit by bit, make permanent change. We're in a long run game. <laughs> That's a good one. If you follow the Hormozy stuff um, and Simon Sinek, they talk about the most people are playing a short-term game, like they're trying to sell mm. their business. They're trying to build a body in six weeks. Get in the infinite game. You, you're never going to lose that. Like you're, if anyone else is competing against you, you know that I'm doing this permanently. I'm, I'm not starting exercise to lose ten kilos. I'm starting to be healthy for the rest of my life or to develop a skill. Like that's probably one of the big things. Is like different mind, mind frame or mindset or flexible approach to what you do. But yeah. Yeah, I really like that. And I think also that really ties back into values as well. If you think about the, you know, I think just to quickly, mm. that the, the concept of the finite and infinite, infinite games is exactly that. It's like, am I doing this for a short-term outcome or am I doing this before the love of the process and for a, a kind of lifetime commitment to this thing? And I think that when mm. you when you look at it, if you're doing something for a short-term outcome for an eight-week shred or for, mm. you know, to just quickly just feel better so that you can get back to, you know, watching Netflix and, you know, doing like you know doing not much else well it could be if you don't have a kind of core underlying value that is linked to that activity then it might be difficult to get into that infinite game but if you are able to Mm -hmm. kind of link the thing that you're doing to some kind of core underlying value that makes certainly in my experience it much easier for you to kind of make those long-term commitments as well Mm. 
Absolutely. And I'm sure we all know at least one person. Everyone has one person. So you're like, how do they keep doing it? Like, they just turn yeah. up. They like it's early in the morning and they're tired. They just turn up and yeah. they do this and they just turn up. And it's like, um, and I was, UFC, I like Volkanovsky feels like one of those guys for me. Like, people talk about him like early morning, doesn't matter. He's always the same nice guy consistently. And that's what I think. Like, everyone knows that. We just, we're getting, we're being inflexible sometimes in our own minds. And it, that would be how I'd like us to choose. Like, choose your behavior, build your discipline become the person you want to be regularly. It's sort of a, it's a small shift uh, over time. And I look, I'm sure you feel the same, but I'm moving towards the person I want to be. Absolutely. As long as you're aware of it and you're reflective and taking steps, you're always moving in that direction. It's the lack of insight that causes the biggest damage. And Mm. you you can't even start without any insight. So if if you're noticing, you're making change. That's super powerful. As we start to go, I've got a couple of kind of quick fire questions for you as we start to kind of come to a close. Yeah. Um, if someone, you know, you also do a lot of work with habits as well. If someone is finding that they want to pick up a, a healthy habit or that they're trying to make a new habit part of their life, but it just won't stick, mm-hmm. what are some things that they might want to consider or maybe some things that they're not do- they're doing wrong, they don't know they're doing wrong? What advice would you have for that person? Don't pick too many habits at once. Often people will be like, I'm going to implement a productivity system. Like that's a bit of work I do. And they're like, there's five habits that I've got to implement. I've got to collect. I've got to review. I've got to um, action these um, productivity stuff. People often pick up, like get on a diet, start exercising, go to bed early, like pick one at a time Mm. and really put all your energy into that one habit and wait until it's actually automated. Everyone hears that 21-day myth. Um, that comes from an old study. I won't go into the detail on that one, but really it could take up to nearly a year. Like it's Mm. 280 days if you're consistently applying it. So that'd be my big one is stick with it, be simple, focus on the the habit you're doing and give it enough time to actually automate. That's great. Fantastic. Mm. You also work with a lot of high-level athletes as well. I think (laughs) at that level, it gives you a very interesting insight. What piece of advice do you find yourself giving most often? Mm. The advice I often give most is around values work, um, especially with athletes. People, they're willing to handle their mind differently. Like some of that stuff they can do anyway. Like you deal with discomfort when you have to exercise every day and do that. So I find values is often a, if I was to give anyone one thing, it would be keep doing what you're doing, but with your values in mind and see where that leads you. Probably the thing I notice with athletes, and you might see this too, is the great on the field, but going out partying and, you know, drinking drugs, crashing cars, getting in the trouble of the law, losing jobs or not pursuing their interest, not completing study. Some don't, like majority probably don't, but you see this stuff happen and it's like, why can you apply your values and your actions so well in this one domain of your life and not in the others? So it'd probably be identifying the values in their performance arena and then extending them into everything else so that they're being that person more consistently. What do you think leads to that cognitive dissonance there where they're applying their values in one area so well and just complete complete absence in another area? It's hard to know for sure. The remoteness from values happens when people just lose contact with it in the moment. Mm-hmm. So you can lose it in sport as well. Like I see people disengage after an injury. That's quite a common experience that we see. So it can happen in that as well. But... Remoteness from values can happen because it's too painful or people are not 
they don't haven't developed self-compassion so they're mm. like um i i'm bad at this or i have this experience so i i don't keep my values in mind because it hurts too much to feel that guilt um, mm. there's lots of reasons we separate from from that those things in the moment but that would probably be some of the main ones i, I think i had this chat to you last time it's been my biggest learning for me outside of my model is um self-compassion like, mm. if i could actually going on values outside of values work self-compassion is probably the biggest thing is it's if if you didn't even do any values work it would make the biggest change for for a lot of guys and men especially are really really bad at, at um, self-compassion i think that's a super super powerful point i've done the the bulk of the stuff that i've done has been around self-love and self-compassion and i think that mm. it's so true and i think that when I first heard advice like that for me, that would always be a bit of another nail in the coffin because I would just be like, well, it's another thing I suck at. You say I need it. I don't have it. So, you know, I'm fucked. <laughs> yeah. But I think I, I also would have loved to know at that stage that it is a skill. It's a skill yeah. you can practice just like the act stuff. I love that the act stuff is kind of, it's a skill that you practice mm. implementing in your own life. Self-compassion is exactly the same. It's a skill that really fucking helps to have someone guide you along the process, but it is a skill that you can practice. You can develop competence with it just like anything else. And I think that's such an important re reframe yeah how did you but, feel when people told you it because like i'm just thinking about my like what thoughts came up for you when someone said you need more self-compassion the biggest thing for me was always that that was not an immediately actionable mm -hmm. statement for me yeah. i didn't know how to i didn't know that it was a skill and i didn't know how to practice mm -hmm. and so it's like when someone would say you just need to trust yourself more you just need to go for it or you need to, it's like for me i didn't have strategies i didn't have systems i didn't have tools or frameworks or methodologies to put that into practice in my life so and this is i think a lot of self-help not that we're saying self-help at all but a lot of the where i would hear that was from self-help yeah, and yeah. there would just be these you need to think about it like this like the reframe thing it's like mm -hmm. it would work with a cognitive aha moment understanding as opposed to a real how do i translate that understanding i would be able to intellectualize my problems to everybody but not actually be able to behave any solutions or you know into a new into a new reality and yeah. so i think that the biggest thing when i heard stuff like it's all about self-love or another thing you know you'll, you'll never no one will love a lovely love you until you love yourself that again that mm -hmm. was another you know, nail on the cover book like, oh, cool don't love myself yeah. so therefore um you know no one's ever going to love me and yeah. it wasn't until that i started to not even not even started but it wasn't until years and years and years and years after i've been kind of trying to look for new solutions stuff like that that i finally come upon some frameworks and some methodologies that helped me practice the skill of self-love practice mm. the skill of self-compassion and gave me contextual independent ways of actually do, using those things in the moment that actually started to be able to put those things into practice for myself and develop as a new baseline so yeah, yeah. it's hard isn't it it's I love hearing your story. Yeah. It makes me feel better because yeah. I heard it. I heard it from my partner because she's a mm. mental health social worker. I heard it from people in my life, and I was just yeah. like, "This is unhelpful." You know, you're not mm. validating yeah. how difficult it is to yes. develop self compassion. Fucking so it's only absolutely. it's only been like twelve months that I've been able to to work nice. on, it. and it really came to a head when I had a very like a an experience that made it too hard, and I mm. went, "Okay, this shadow stuff's showing up too much. I'm yeah. going to start doing some work on this." And Kristen Neff, if you've seen some of her stuff, um, she's one of she's great. Oh, let's see if I got it here. But anyway, Brené Brown's another good one if everyone's had. Mm. But Kristen Neff's stuff is amazing, and that really for me was like, how is there not more practical tips for men on self kindness, self compassion? Like, it feels like something that is a bit of a missing 
thing sometimes. And yeah. that's a, and I created a free course if anyone does want to reach out and whatever else and you feel yeah, like nice. you need some. Uh, how to be a great mate to yourself. So it's very much framed around me. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah so that's sure I'll leave a yeah. link to that in the description. If anyone wants to go check that out, that'd be great. Yeah, cool. And yeah, it's it's practical. Like you can figure this stuff out for yourself. Jump on Kristen F's stuff. She's got some awesome tools. But really the whole thing is like, why don't we treat ourselves the way we treat our good friends is mm. the, the gist of that approach. Like when someone comes to you and says, my cat's died, you go, suck it up, mate. Get on with it. You know, yeah. you wouldn't say that. But if something happens in your head, you're like, why are you so weak? Why are you lazy? Mm. Like all these identification things. So, yeah, it's, it's about acknowledging that and, and moving forward from it. So it's made a huge difference in my life. I I enjoy being around people more. It's something that I didn't mm. expect would come out of it because right, I always huge. felt that judgment and that whole, you know, you point one finger out, you have three coming back. Mm. So I had this like very externalized looking for problems and I don't know why, but that as soon as I started to work on myself, I started to appreciate other people better more as well. If you'd be open to sharing, what was the experience that really changed that for you? We don't have to go into it as well. It's no, that's fine. Um, yeah. Probably, yeah, it's a bit of a full-on one, but it was, um, I went to my dad's 60th, um, and he probably won't watch this, so that's good. But I, um, yeah, we've had our stuff over the years, and I mm. just um, told him drunk what I thought of him and yeah. um, told off my grandma and woke up the next morning and just pretty much regretted it all, went and apologized to everyone and right. then realized, you know, you can't just mask this stuff. You can't just mm. pretend it doesn't exist. Every now and then if you you remove the cover, you're going to blurt it all out. So you got yeah. to do some work on it rather than just pretend it doesn't happen or exist. Yeah. So that was really the experience, but it was, it was one of those very shameful, like mm. I have, a, my response is often that it's like identification with what I've done. So it yeah. was like getting to the point I was okay with it. I wouldn't be able to talk to you now if I hadn't done work on it because yeah, it just no. hurts too much yeah. to, to get to that. <laughs> so it's a, it's a work in progress. Yeah, man, I really appreciate you sharing. Yeah, and that's mm. that's super powerful. That yeah, often it is the experience of the field the most, the closest to the deepest shame and mm. sphere and all that kind of stuff that does propel some deeper inquiry, de deeper inquiry and deeper work. So that's that. Mm. I guess the I don't know what did you call it the functional contextuality or the, the, you know, <laughs> functional contextual. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many words. I, I know. I'm, I'm going to study this podcast myself. <laughs> this has been this has been really great, man. I'd yeah. love to close out with one last little quick fire question. Like, what is the lesson you feel like take it the longest, do you the longest to learn? Probably common humanity is, and it's a theme out of Cuff's compassion is that, like, that keyhole that I talked about, we often look at it like we're this human box that's having this experience that's unique to us. When mm. you connect with other people and you drop that facade for a second, you realize everyone struggles with the same things. Everyone's going through this human experience and understanding that really makes things a lot easier. Like it's a much less of a burden. It's much more functional. So yeah, if you can, if that was something I would like to, to leave, that would be amazing. And that helps me be okay with like, I'm not a permanent existence either. I'm going to die yeah. one day, but, yeah. but we're connected to everything. <laughs> That's beautiful, man. I, that is certainly <laughs> one that is, yeah, for, for myself as well. It's, 
it's easy it's so easy to lose that context i think and especially when we, we we can live a slightly more isolated lives much more easily now than we couldn't you know previous times in the past mm. and that's certainly an easy one to forget man i think it's a really beautiful thing to kind of tie this off man there's been so much value packed and i've learned so much from the podcast man i just really appreciate you sharing your expertise and your yeah your lots of psychological knowledge it's been really really great <laughs> appreciate you having me on and reaching out and having a chat so yeah man fun if people want to go and find more of your stuff where can they check you out yeah, so I can send you through some details for um, on Instagram. It's Valued Action Man on YouTube as well. And um, yeah, mostly at the moment putting out content, but if anyone wants to do any coaching sessions, I'm offering that through the Calendly link in the Instagram as well. Great, man. I'll leave links to all of that in the description, man. Awesome. Awesome, Appreciate man. It. Thanks so much for doing this. Cheers.